Welcome to the first episode of Season 3 of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season 3 of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Terence Hayes during his tenure as a Bagley Wright Lecturer. Hayes's lectures circle the work and life of Etheridge Knight, a poet who has been a muse in mystery and ghost mentor for Hayes throughout his career. In each of the six lectures we'll hear this season, Hayes uses Knight to anchor his broad explorations of poems and poetics. This week, we'll hear Hayes give a talk called Turning into Dwelling, the Space Between the Poet and the Poem, which focuses on Knight's mentee, Christopher Gilbert, and the importance of community. This talk was originally given October 9th, 2014, at Cave Please enjoy this episode. What I'm going to do first is read this poem, which has a lot of uh, medicines in it. And I can really stop. Once you hear this poem, you'll be like, who is this brother, if you've never heard of him. Uh, Chris Gilbert and Improvisation. I'm going to read this, and I'll circle back to it towards the end of the uh, talk. Chris Gilbert and Improvisation. The writing on the half-filled helium balloon says, Get well soon. A few days from getting out of the hospital, I'm trying to make a balloon float again while I watch the body of Lieutenant Colonel William Higgins somewhere in Lebanon swing from its noose on the TV news. High on cyclosporine, prednisone, imuron, ephedipine, Zantac, timorin, lasix, persantine, I tossed the balloon on its tether toward the tepid air around the TV where Dan Rather's voice rises. Though it is cloaked in the lifelessness as the corpse it describes, which even as it swings is getting hardened into a media thing, a factual, because it's no longer filled with the ponderous void that living brings. A weight fills me as I allow myself to think that being alive is hard work. Full of just this human future, which in the light of Higgins, hits me as an emptiness I make promises of to lift my spirit with. As I watch TV, I imagine the kidney I've been given is Higgins. But now my nurse comes in with more medicine and juice to swallow with this, and stories of how her shift has been promises of a back rub later that, though it might not show what will become of me as it really is, does distinguish my next few hours or so from his. So for this moment, I take this strange white setting and its alien equipment and my nurse and even my new body and its present distinctions as part of a momentary thing, presuming its momentary meaning, or else, like Higgins, hardening into a loss or ending. I'm reaching to get through the frozen doors of these stagnant facts, to sully the present happy affliction with lack, with becoming, or so unfinished apt to show the consequences of where I'm at. So tonight, when the team of hematology troops in to take my blood again, asking if I'm the transplantation, and I go mum because I've gone through this twice daily now, two weeks, my family, who will be visiting, 
and who will help me into whatever state of mind I am will clear the air for me to declare I am. The IV unit with my name and directions for my care taped to the top will indicate I am. The ID bracelet I've been wearing since I got here will say for me I am. The scar the surgeon left as a signature on my right belly's side will say I am. I am, I feel, a gathering possibility passing from one temporary articulation to articulation the way the horizon arises in the sun as a series of evident illuminations while the earth spins clockwise toward futurity. When the time comes, I'll rise and say, I am. I'll gather all my questions, step into their midst, and say, I am. I am, I am. That's so Come on. I am up there. Come on. I can just stop right there. I am. I am. Anyway, okay. So so we'll come back to it. I just I wanted to read all of them and there's a lot of excerpts in the uh, in the essay, but that one you gotta hear it all. Alright, so it's turning into dwelling the space between the poet and the poem. And this is another poem um, that I'm going to start this talk with. It's just the beginning of it. At closing time, standing outside the public library with ID card expired, the books remain on the shelves. Lev Vitsky, Toni Morrison, Levertov, Cassier, and the Zora Neale Hurston, which probably isn't there. These opening lines from Chris Gilbert's poem, The The, that's what it's called. The, the, almost sound like lines from a Ziggy comic. Remember Ziggy? Not a term. Beset in every strip by whimsical misadventures, sunny bad luck. See, this is right. I'm not going to keep doing this. But you know, he's sort of like Charlie Brown without any friends. So he's got like, you know, and, uh, I don't know if young people don't remember saying things. The opening of The, the, with its weird echoing title, could be uttered by a shy, ziggy-like black man whose accent blends his Birmingham, Detroit, and Providence tracks. After working all day as a staff psychologist, after dinner with his wife and kids, dog walking, he hustles to the local library with poetry on his breath, only to find the doors locked. And furthermore, as if in an ironic situation comedy, his identification, identification card expired. As I imagine this idealist man with a perfect, I'll be damned look on his face, he begins to favor not just Ziggy, but Bill Cosby in a 1980s sitcom. Except, of course, the unusual authors he hunts and the unusual thoughts he thinks make this more than your usual situation comedy. This guy is looking for Lev Vitsdotsky. I don't even know if you guys know who that is. The Russian psychologist who wrote in 1934 that thought does not express itself in words, rather realizes itself in them. And he's looking for Ernst Cassier, the German philosopher, who wrote in 1929 that the human spirit, an astonishing delusion, flees itself while seeking itself. So we'll come back to all of that. In seeing what the seeker seeks, we see something of the seeker. This guy is smart enough to know what he doesn't know, and smart enough to know where to find it, the public library, the language house. 
Vitskotsky and Castier, as I hope will come evident, are not incidental to the poem or to Chris Gilbert's body of work in general. The other writers also suggest a great deal about his sensibilities, the current of politics in Denise Levertov, the lyrical resonances of Toni Morrison, the anthropological pulse of Zora Neale Hurston. It's a wonderfully diverse list, but the authors share a concern for cultural community or communal culture. Finding the public library closed, the speaker can only say, this is also fact too, this is what he says in the next stanza. I feel like some third person locked outside the language through which I am the things I need. This could be our epigraph for this talk on poetic community, poetic advocacy, and poetic isolation. When I consider the third person he mentions, my mind goes to the other two persons he infers. The person who aims to dwell in the community space a library constitutes. The person who is an advocate, a teacher, a librarian, an intermediary who bridges, processes, and preserves the language of those spaces. And then the person who's locked outside those spaces, isolated by will or circumstance. That third person is not obliterated by isolation, however. It makes him a witness, and it makes him testify. So I didn't tell you how to take notes, because I know it's a lot. So just remember, just like remember one thing, that we can talk about it later on, because I already feel like I can keep up with me. So isolation, he's not obliterated by the fact that he's locked outside of the library. Instead, he says this. To them, actually, this could be a kind of thing to put in a t-shirt. To them who want to hide my face, I say my body is a display of truth as I put it here where it belongs, in the public domain. I say this loudly and bodily and out of place. I mean, so what you really need to pay attention to is not my theories about him. Just listen to the poems, like little excerpts of poems. So that's another, that's like, that's just him. And you're like, how do I know who this dude is? How does this person walk the earth? And, anyway, okay, so that's why, yeah, that's why we're here. So from outside the language house, Christopher Gilbert creates a language that insists his place as well as his displacement. I say this is a version of Christopher Gilbert because Christopher Gilbert says it is Christopher Gilbert. He says, I am absolutely the I in the writing. But he writes the I with the lowercase i, as if to suggest that he nonetheless struggles to dwell inside and outside his writing, his community, and his selves. The poems strike me as urgent because of his isolation. The poet strikes me as tragic because of his isolation. I won't say lonely. I don't know if he was lonely. I know almost nothing about him. His obituary says he died at 57 on a Thursday in July 2007 at the Rhode Island Hospital in Providence. That he was the husband of Barbara Morin, the father of Gracie Gilbert and Robin Gilbert, the stepfather of Heather Morin, a professor of psychology at Bristol Community College for 15 years, and then almost as an aside, the obituary says, he was also a poet. His book of poems, Across the Mutual Landscape, won the 1983 Walt Whitman Award. So when I read Chris Gilbert's first book, what I did was write an exasperated email to my poetry mentors, pals, and peers, especially my black poetry mentors, pals, and peers, asking what they knew of him. To my surprise, nearly everyone recalled Christopher Gilbert's poetry. A 
why haven't they told me about it? So before going further, I should go back to the first time I heard Christopher Gilbert's name. In 2010, three years after his death from a kidney ailment, an elder poet named Fran Quinn asked if I was familiar with the work of Chris Gilbert. We were walking at the edge of a lake one night at Robert Bly's Great Mother Conference. I was there teaching a poetry workshop, but as the name implies, officially the Great Mother and New Father Conference, it is far from your run-of-the-mill poetry gathering. There have been, since its 1975 inception, more than a few occasions for its poets, dancers, painters, storytellers, environmentalists, Jungians, tabla drummers, shamanic astrologers, mythopoeticists, to weep at the state of the cosmos, or the sound of a sitar, or the sight of the great Robert Bly crossing a rustic threshold. The kinds of people you rarely find at poetry retreats had taught there. Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and The Power of the Myth, for example, and Marion Woodson, who wrote Dancing in the Flames, The Dark Goddess of the Transformation of Consciousness, they talked there. In the year I visited, Lewis Hyde was there. He wrote The Trickster Makes This World, Mischief, Myth, and Art, which already, I guess you want to take that out. Trickster Makes This World, Mischief, Myth, and Art. And he also wrote before that The Gift, Creativity and the Artist in the Modern World. I don't know if y'all know that book. That's just an awesome book. If you don't know it, you should, you should check it out. Um, this is my, what I think the book sort of goes to. It's a landmark book about the importance of an uncommodified art and a culture that needs to commodify everything. So that's how I get here, like doing this for free. Because that's the gift. That's really what that's all about. Like, whatever you can pay me for this would not actually account for what we're doing. So that's, that's one of his arguments. So he was there the year that I was there. Um, as you might imagine from these titles, there are lots of mostly old white men with beards, lots of mostly old women without bras, <laughs> and a few hippies with PhDs. That's the great one. But there was no carpet, there was no television, there was no internet, there was no easy escape route to town, and minus me, no black folk. I may have been only the third or fourth black dude to have ever attended. So Fran is in the audience, so he's going to tell us if I'm right or not. So a bunch of white people shaking and hooting and fingering their chakras in the woods may sound, depending on your disposition, a little quaint or a little dangerous. But this group was made of beautiful, expressive enthusiasm. Still, all through my time at the Great Mother Conference, I pondered the ways it, like Kavikanam and Kundaman and Kuntamundo, was a paradoxically open and closed community. So we're going to talk about that. So whenever my white friends have jokingly say, I want to be the first white poet to teach at Kavikanam, and more than one or two have said it over the years, I feel the same mix of compassion and over my dead bodyness. <laughs> over my dead bodyness. So I have said more than once or twice, oh, you should check out the Great Mother Conference. <laughs> so yes, Kavi Khan has much to offer absolutely everyone. Yes, people of color should, among all people, grasp the importance of integration, of access to even the spaces in which one feels or is acutely different. But what I imagine is the disconcerting self-consciousness 
these white friends would feel in a kind of, kind of space. It's not unlike the self-consciousness people of color feel pretty much everywhere, every day. I want for the poets outside of such retreats what I want for the poets inside. A safe space, a space that permits transparency, risk, screw-ups, outrage, forgiveness, genius. The success of such venues certainly suggests that there are benefits to solidarity. Heaven has those pearly gates for a reason. FUBU is the official logo of Utopias Everywhere, for us, by us. But I'm actually not advocating for the segregation so much as asking about our duties to the individuals who could, but don't or won't belong to those communities. How should one balance the inclusiveness and exclusiveness of such spaces? And who should guard this balance? And who should bridge it? At the Great Mother Conference, I was welcomed. I have not been back, but I felt welcomed. The participants, who understandably were eager to have a bit more youth and color, made every effort to bring me into their community. In fact, they sometimes seemed downright distracted by making me feel safe and welcome. I imagine that they were much more relaxed when I wasn't there. In any event, Fran, who had been at the Great Mother Conference since the very beginning, took me for walks. He talked about the future of the conference, given its aging constituents, what would happen when the already frail lie was too, uh, grew too frail to attend. He could not have known his concerns for the future of that community made me think of the future of others. We talk often of Etheridge Knight, who attended the conference in its early years, and who Fran had invited me to meet 20 years later, uh, 20 years earlier. So Fran Quinn, I should say, is one of the first poets I ever met. Uh, he visited fairly miraculously my small South Carolina college when I was 18. My English professor sat me and my poems in a room with him, and he said there was promise. He told me if I could find my way to Indiana during winter break, he introduced me to his close friend, the famed prison poet, Etheridge Knight. I knew who Etheridge was. I'd read him in my literature textbooks and memorized the idea of ancestry, but I declined the invitation, knowing my mother would never let me spend the holidays with a strange white man in the ex con <laughs> and then, shortly thereafter, Knight passed away, March 1991. Still carrying the ache of that missed opportunity, 20 years later, I was with Fran for a second time, and he was offering up the name of another black poet. We'd been talking about the joyous hell Ethridge Knight had raised when he attended the conference, when Fran asked if I knew Chris Gilbert's work. Gilbert had driven Knight up to the great mother once or twice, had been a member of Knight's Free People's Workshop when Knight lived in Massachusetts. I didn't know the name. He was a great poet, a black guy, a great guy, Fran said. He had published one book, Across the Mutual Landscape. There was a second book. Maybe it was too political, too far ahead of his time, Fran mused. But Chris had died suddenly in 2007 before it ever saw the light of day. Maybe Fran wiped his nose as he spoke, cleared his throat. I think he was always on the verge of tears that summer. Frank and the poet Mary Fell had been close friends of Gilbert, and they now had the unpublished book back in Indiana. I didn't ask to see the manuscript, though Frank might have offered to send it to me. I told him I would run down across the mutual landscape, the first book, 
as soon as I got back home. But what I did as soon as I got back home was reacquaint myself with civilization, internet, my wife and kids. Then a week or so later, a friend, the poet Ed Pavlich, happened to send me, uh, happened to email me, Marking Time, a poem by Christopher Gilbert. Did I know the poem, he asked, assuming I already knew the poem. I wrote back that I didn't know the poem. Was this Christopher Gilbert deceased, I asked? No, I'm pretty sure Chris Gilbert is alive and living in Providence, Ed replied, adding that he'd been thinking about inviting him down to Georgia to read at his university. Then he wrote back a day later after some digging online and said it was indeed the same Chris Gilbert. Three years had passed since Christopher Gilbert's death, and there was still almost no word of it in the poetry community. It wasn't on Poetry Foundation, it wasn't on Academy of American Poets. The coincidence of hearing about Gilbert suddenly from two different poets within a couple of weeks felt uncanny. Even more remarkable, Ed happened to be in Bloomington, Indiana, teaching at the Writers' Conference about an hour from Indianapolis where Fran lived. He'd come across a copy of Across the Mutual Landscape in a Bloomington used bookstore. It was a book he'd always loved. I knew he'd be interested in the new work. Ed agreed to drive to Indy to get the posthumous manuscript from Fran. For me at the time, it was more a matter of curiosity than advocacy. But then, across the mutual landscape, arrived in the mail. So we had to talk about like ghosts and gods and secret powers and all that. But to me, all of that is like somebody else. Maybe Christopher Gilbert is working, because that's just too many coincidences for me. But it ain't science. So but something was going on. He's like, man, look, pay attention. So during the one or two weeks it took for Ed to get the unpublished manuscript back to his home in Georgia, scanned and then emailed to me, I read and reread Across the Mutual Landscape. I was overwhelmed, awestruck, saddened. I was not yet sure what the later work would look like, but I was sure there was nothing to get me. I remember the first time I met my half-brother. He was six foot eight, and he looked more like my daughter than I do. That's the familiarity I felt reading across the mutual landscape. I typed and emailed at least a dozen people the facts, which is the sixth and final section of Gilbert's long poem, Horizontal Cosmology. And I asked everyone, who is Mr. Gilbert, and why am I only just hearing about him? So this is one of the points I started to give it all to you, but I'm just going to read a few lines of it so you can just see how awesome it is. So this is the facts from that long poem. This is how it starts. Looking down the empty mason jars in the cupboard, I forget myself. I forget my name and its belongings. I forget my plastic ID card. He always has ID cards. You notice that the three points we looked at, he got an ID card, expired, and he's wearing it in a Christmas. Anyways, I don't know what that means. I forget my plastic ID card for the Y, my Exxon credit card, the square feeling it leaves in my hand. I forget passing 30 and feeling nothing but dreaming blue tears that night all the same. I forget wanting money, no, wanting to be like men who have money, who piss against the wall of good fortune. It's a litany of the forgetting that's a kind of remembering. He says, I forget the days in the auto plant doing 70 bodies per minute, the tools continuous and one loud scream, the pinch and punch and press pounding steel, the gray space inside myself driven like a car to the next stop down the line. 
I forget the textbook recipes and the facts I have never lived in school. I forget the facts I lived, the wet kiss in the heart of all events drying out. I forget Worcester, Massachusetts, Oakland, Lansing, Michigan, and Birmingham, their industrial dream frozen in the air. What I continue to ask myself is was Chris Gilbert forgotten because he wanted to be forgotten or forgotten because we forgot him? He ends the stanza with this. My face is a mask. Everyone wears it. When I take it off, there's another face. Come on, man. <laughs> I turn around to you, you, this moment I have come to empty-handed and not myself. Right? The image of the mask reappears in the poem I opened with, the the. He says, I try to place myself among the facelessness Forms who abuse, whose abused use reduces even my bodily truths to a mask. Gilbert often seems to be asking, how can I be certain of my community, my world, when I'm not certain of myself? It's a kind of unresolvable question explored, not so much in a single poem as a body of work. It's a sort of quest that makes him some sort of black confessional modernist. I suppose we could just as easily call it modern postmodernism. So for me, the word always feels a little premature. Confessionalism in Gilbert is synonymous with transparency, with the eye that is unashamed of its debt to experience and the difficulties of processing experience, especially black experience. His style of modernism has some of Eliot's pomp and some of Stephen's aloofness, and it has some of William Carlos Williams' idiomatic, occasionally intellectualizing charge. We can talk about that later too. I think, as a side note, make sure I say this. You know, it's because William Carlos Williams is a doctor too. So if you read a whole bunch of Williams, especially the longer stuff, it's always a little bit weird. Like syntax it sort of decays a little bit, but that's him being a doctor on top of the poet. And I think the same is true for Gilbert. You can hear him being like a psychologist sometimes. So anyway, so that's like what I would call it uh, idiomatic, occasionally intellectualizing jargon. This has some of Gene Toomer's pastoralism, Gene Toomer was a modernist, and Robert Hayden's textual densities. But everything is filtered through a subjective uncertainty that makes his concerns prescient and present and ours. So in the breathing in an anticipatory space, Gilbert's 1988 essay on Edwards Knight, he provides the only explicit commentary I could find regarding his sense of poetry. He says, for the poet, the startling feeling is how much we, as minds, are in the world rather than apart from it. We are our situations. The remark seems in conversation with Lev Vygotsky's notion that the mind is shaped through language and Ernst Cassier's notion that we paradoxically flee ourselves even when we are seeking ourselves. It's not that we make words, it's that we are made of words. And because words are so unfixed and amorphous, when we try to unmask ourselves through language, there is always another mask beneath the mask. But this is not a problem for Gilbert. It's, as he says, a situation. It's not a problem, it's a situation. That's kind of what my dad would say. If the face is a mask, we can remove it and wear any mask. The masks we wear make us mercurial, empathetic, and imaginative, which is counterintuitive. Like he's like, the mask is a good thing because it allows us to be other people. For example, in the poem echoing his debut's title, Kodak and Chris Walking the Mutual Landscape, 
a speaker so like Chris Gilbert, his name is actually Chris, is out walking his dog when he says to the dog, let's be simultaneous. <laughs> because for once, we are beings knowing nothing lives as a foreignness, he says to the dog. Later in the poem, he says, seeming to merge with the consciousness of the dog, let's begin by being neutral. I'll be damned if I don't step down in my neighbor's yard with my mutt's paw and my situation whole in the world. In Gilbert's poem, the self wanders a world that is not narrative, historical, or personal, but all these things simultaneously, a situation. A title I know, listen to this title. Listening to Monk's Mysterio, I Remember Braiding My Sister's Hair. That's the title of the poem. Suggest the ways his poems in his debut, Brave Situation. Now, this book is around. This book came out in 1983. I haven't got to the new book yet. I'm saying that this thing is probably in a bookstore in Brooklyn right now. Uh, actually, the end of his, oh, I, I, I skipped something. The, the book's final poem, Time with Stevie Wonder in it, also a bad title. Time with Stevie Wonder in it shows the ways his poems link a single moment to all the surrounding moments. Actually, the end of his first poem in Across a Mutual, a Mutual Landscape, this bridge across forecasts this aim. He says, each moment is a boundary I will throw this bridge across. So the space between the poet and the poem constitutes a moment, and then the space between the poem and the audience constitutes another moment. Had there been no second book, we'd still have cause to meditate on the poetry of Chris Gilbert. That's what I'm saying. <coughs> Are you convinced yet? I mentioned a poem in which a dude morphs into his dog, y'all. <laughs> in this elegy, Muriel Rukeyser as energy. He imagines Muriel Rukeyser as energy. Come on, man. I ain't never been that imagined. He says, she is the speed of darkness. Witness her mystery, not her power. It's all in the poems. Near the end of his masterful horizontal cosmology, which is, the, I read you just a part of it, that I forget, he turns himself, now listen, he turns himself into a bucket of rainwater set beside a trail you are passing. And he says, I wish you luck. You, this world's blue thirst. You might be Malcolm X with one of Rothke's roses in your vest. You know the arithmetic of a double thirst. It's the same old loneliness that made cold train disappear. This time, I'll be of use. That's what he says. Had there been no second book, I would still be here saying, it's not the poetry and maybe not even the poet, but the poem that matters most. The poem is the source of the most intimate interaction between the poet and the reader. The poem resists summary and blurbs. It asks a little more than ear and air. But obviously, we don't get to the poems without the poet and the poetry. Should we ultimately advocate for the poet or the poetry? So when I opened the file that Ed sent and read the title, Chris Gilbert and Improvisation, Music of the Striving That Was There, I said, God damn. So I read y'all the title poem, but that's the name of the book. Chris Gilbert and Improvisation. So when I saw that, I just said, damn. I mean, Chris Gilbert and Improvisation. That title tells us everything. 
It embraces the confessional even while complicating it. It presents someone improvising what it means to be Chris Gilbert, a philosophical wanderer full of wry blue wonder. In Tourist, a poem from the first section, a section subtitled Steps and Transformation, he writes, I am into the small steps here. I told the bits of me. I have lived in countless places, childless and without song. The self is a tourist, both displaced and situated in his displacement. Selfhood becomes an act of existential migration. So we know what the migration is, but like existential migration. That's what he's talking Selfhood becomes as open as the gaps between language, between reading and thinking, between timelessness and time. The poet self strives to build, as Gilbert writes in the poem, turning into dwelling, a language house, a loving which lives outside time. The language house is one way of understanding the public library in the poem, The Thug. The language house is also one way of thinking about poetic community. The language house is a shelter for the self that is searching and adrift, which is really you know, black. One of the people I emailed after reading the new book was Jeff Schatz, the Bray Wolf editor. Once he'd seen the poems and shared them with Mark Doty, they agreed to publish the new work in a reissue, along with the reissue of Across the Mutual Landscape and Bray Wolf's review series. So the review series brings, you know, overlooked books back in the print. Uh, so as we mulled over the title, Fran, Ed, Jeff, myself, what came back to me was the ending of Turning Into Dwelling, that poem. Uh, and I'm just read you like a little bit of it. Lord, the anguish of my black block rises up in me like grief. My only chance is to go beyond breach, to resist being quelled as a bit of inner city entropy, to speak up for the public which has birthed me to build this language house, to make this case, create this loving which lives outside of time, Lord, this time. So turning into dwelling embodies Gilbert's obsession with the space, the breach really, between restlessness and stability, inside and outside, closed and open, public and private. His poetry makes turning both a gesture and an act of transformation, and it makes dwelling both a shelter and an act of so that, that's going to be the title of the book, Turning as well. Let's these two together. So here we go. We're almost out. Though, though there were no other books, Christopher Gilbert maintained his links to poetry and poets at least through the 1980s. In 1986, after receiving a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Poetry, he took a year off and was poet resident at the Robert Frost Center in New Hampshire, as well as a visiting poet at the University of Pittsburgh. Contemporary Authors Online Biography Resource Center cites Gilbert explaining how the time off was necessary for his poems. He says, quote, I feel that my own ability to write poetry wants this. It wants its experience to be grounded in the first-hand world gained through contact with the lives of people. With me as a subject, as an empathy, with a reflection towards one's deeper and longer life, with goals, concept of use. So this is just him talking about what he's going to do with his NEA grant. One hears his desire to be less isolated, to find community and purpose. The penultimate section of Into the Into, one of the last poems in Christopher Gilder improvisation, works quite explicitly to explore or reconcile the ambitions he set for himself. 
I am a passing thing in which I am a subject. Read my lines. Be my mind. I am absolutely the eye in the body the dead refuse to say. Where he set a goal to be subject as an empathy for community, he inevitably calls out for the empathy of community. Read my lines, be my mind. So I, I, I'm saying that to say that part of our conversation would be what I said earlier, like was he forgotten? Or did, we, did he want to be forgotten or did we forget him? So I'm suggesting here, there seems to be, especially in the late 80s, he's like, he has a plan to be more present in the community. Into the Intimate is almost a somber presage of the next decade's blocks or silences or refusal. When I emailed Elizabeth Alexander about Gilbert, she said she never met him, but she knew his work. She called him a few years before he died, wanting to include him in an anthology. He was quiet, said he was dealing with chronic illness, not friendly, not unfriendly, said he had new poems, but he never sent them. She ended the message with a very earnest question, maybe the most original poet of his generation? Possibly. By the early 1990s, Gilbert was a psychology, psychology professor at Bristol Community College in Massachusetts. Whatever the difficulties, illness, doubt, discouragement, Gilbert's poems remain in the world. In the remarkable title poem, Chris Gilbert and Improvisation, someone so like Christopher Gilbert, he calls himself Christopher Gilbert, is in the hospital after one of the surgeries that we now know will ultimately not save him. So I won't read it again, but you know that I am stuff. Uh, at the end of it, I am, I gather all my questions, step into their midst and say I am, I am, I am. So I assume the poem was truly the last of his poems, a breathtaking self-elegy written near his death in 2007, after a 20-year battle with polycystic kidney disease. I thought, yes, Chris Gilbert was beautifully striving to be even when there was no discernible poetry community to inhabit. I was ready for some inspiring myth-making. And then, out of curiosity, I Googled Lieutenant Colonel Williams Higgins, who he mentions at the front, and read that he was captured by Hezbollah while serving on a United Nations peacekeeping mission in 1988. And then he'd be hung by his captors in 1980. The detail deeply depressed me. It left me with room to fill that 17-year gap following Gilbert's decade of productivity and special aspirations to build community. Some days I assure myself he continued working, but it's hard to know. I like to imagine him fine-tuning, dismantling, and reassembling the book as if it was a self meant to endure. There were nine or ten versions left to Fran and Mary Fell, who, according to Fran, ordered them into a final set. I still don't know the role Gilbert's wife played in any of this. It's not that I think an organization like Copy County, or really even a great poet friend, would have helped Gilbert write into the 90s. It's not that complete, at least. It's a question of our obligations, not just to the people within our circle, but those outside. We don't have to look very far to find poets prizing and protecting and complicating what it means to belong to a community of black poets. Kyle Common fellows and teachers, one must assume, ascribe to the organization's mission as a home for the many voices of African-American poetry. But bringing many voices together means notions of poetry and blackness and even solidarity are constantly being challenged and expanded. 
How does the multiplicity of voices change the fundamental blackness that unifies CopyCon as a community? What is our obligation to those poets who remain, for whatever reason, outside even our most diverse communities? What are we going to do about, with, for that other psychologist poet working out there? His name might be Forrest Hamer. I don't even know if y'all know who Forrest Hamer is. What are we going to do about, with, for Thalia's loss and her limited fourth theory? She's a little nuts, but that's her when we're talking about the poems. Will Alexander, what should we have done about, with, for Wanda Coleman, I, Russell Atkins? Gilbert's struggle was, perhaps like any poet's struggle, to maintain both a willful, essential individuality and a sense of community. I'm not quite able to say what that community looked like for him or any of the poets I've named. I'm not even sure that this space is that community, only that we are the advocates between the public domain and the private poet. Michael Harper, who selected across the mutual landscape for, its, for the 1983 Walt Whitman Award, was one of the first poets I emailed in 2010 to ask about Gilbert. Harper has never failed to acknowledge his muses and mentors, Sterling Brown, Robert Hayden, most especially, but he's also been muse and mentor for many others. He told me Gilbert had died of an inherited kidney problem, and that as an undergraduate, he studied with Robert Hayden at the University of Michigan. I can't help but wonder how much Gilbert was shaped by his relationships with Hayden, the austere formalist, and Harper, the jazz progressive, and Knight, the restless bluesman. Gilbert, born in Birmingham, Alabama, was like Etheridge Knight, a southern transplant. Gilbert, like Hayden, was raised in industrial Detroit, Michigan. Gilbert, like Harper, lived much of his adult life in Providence, Rhode Island. I can't help but wonder how many great stories he could have shared about them. He dwelled at the borders of many poetic, cultural, and intellectual communities. It is possible he was, when he lived, absorbed by the gaps in those borders, the ponderous void that living brings. I think of him and his poems somehow always here and not here at the edge of our community. That is to say, his poems have never seemed abandoned or forgotten or disregarded. They seem to have anticipated his family, his friends like Fran, his fans like me and I hope you guys, striving as he strove to build this language house, to make this case, create this loving which lives outside of time. Lord, this time. That's it. That was Terence Hayes giving his lecture, Turning into Dwelling, the Space Between the Poet and the Poem. Hayes's book, based on his Bagley Wright lectures, To Float in the Space Between, A Life and Work in Conversation with the Life and Work of Etheridge Knight, was published by Wave Books in 2018 and is available for purchase at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. 
Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothy Alasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikanth Reddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarnot, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker, with help from Caitlin Airy Johnson. Thank you to Kaveh Kanam for originally partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions, from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.